0: Before we jump into today's topic, a quick disclaimer. The stories and data we share come from the states that we practice in and the experiences that we personally had, which can differ greatly across our country and certainly the globe. This is not a professional advice show. So let's get comfy and talk about death.
1: Welcome to Mort Mike, a down-to-earth discussion on death and dying. I'm Jem.
0: And I'm Red, and we're your educators of the existential this week.
1: Yeah, so today our topic is going to be a little bit um, educational. There are many, many, many professionals in the death industry, so we kind of wanted to give you sort of a death industry, death professional 101 lesson here today.
0: We wanted to make it a point early on in the podcast to give all of our listeners the crash course in death care occupational definitions, because there are so many jobs within it, and you might not realize that they exist or even what a specific job title does. So there's an incredible amount of vocabulary that pertains to funeral industry and is oft unknown and many times confusing for those who don't interact with it on a daily basis. Some terms are completely interchangeable or archaic or different entirely.
1: We also want to point out that every state is different, every country in our world is different. So a lot of our experiences we had in our states that we've practiced in, um so I know we try to educate ourselves in a lot of the state laws, but reading state law isn't really a pastime that we like to do very <laughs> often. You know, just realize that we are doing our best, but there's a lot a lot of variation within each and every state, which is really crazy, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And I also want to reiterate that we are not a serial podcast. So you can, you know, miss a couple of weeks, jump back in, don't worry about it. Um, we just wanted to get kind of the, uh, I guess, dirty work out of the way first. As they say, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so like I said in the last episode we did, I was totally unaware of funeral directors and really any sort of death professional. I think unless you are directly dealing with death in your life or you have before, uh, these people aren't really at the the forefront, or even the back front of your mind, <laughs> uh, let's set the scene. So you are a perfectly healthy, 120-year-old, <laughs> happy, loving person in your beautiful home. You decide to go outside and water your flowers. All of a sudden, everything goes black. You just had a stroke. You're dead. What happens now? Your dog walker finds you on your perfectly manicured lawn and calls 911. So the police are the first people that are going to respond to scene. As you know, the policemen are first responders. They are not death professionals. They deal with death a lot, um, but they are absolutely not death professionals. So who do the police call? They call the medical examiner or the coroner. These terms you've probably heard before in you know TV shows, case reports, whatever, cold case files, and a lot of people actually confuse them for the same job coroner, medical examiner, it's the same thing. It's actually not the same thing. And there's a lot of different laws that differentiate the two. So coroner is actually the first death professional that came around. And the earliest instance of a coroner can be found in England in the 12th century. So coroner literally means crown or safeguarding the crown's private property. So you can assume that the coroner back in England sort of kind of was out there to collect for the king. And the king assigned the coroner with the job of keeping track of deaths in his kingdom. So the American coroner didn't really come around until about 1860 was the first instance of a coroner being contracted by the police for a death. And that happened in Maryland. And actually in 1868, the first coroner's office was established in Baltimore. So the difference between a coroner and a medical examiner, the coroner is often appointed or elected. They can be anywhere from a medical professional to a sheriff. They really don't in a lot of states, they don't need any sort of formal training or um, any sort of requirements. I think in one of the states I read, you have to be 25 years old and registered to vote in order to <laughs> hold the office of coroner, <laughs> which is pretty much everybody. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. So go check and see if you can run for coroner in your county. Just kidding. <laughs> So they're often um sheriffs actually because you know police are on scene at the time of death in a lot of small counties, the sheriff will do just fine. But the coroner does not perform autopsies. So the role of medical examiner came around in eighteen seventy-seven, just ten years later in Massachusetts, was the first instance that a coroner asked a medical examiner for help. And the first medical examiner office was established in New York City in nineteen eighteen. So a medical examiner is a medical professional that is almost always a physician. Interesting fact, uh, West Virginia, you do not need to be a physician to be the medical examiner. So everyone hmm. in West Virginia, <laughs> go ahead. And that's not discrediting anything. This is just, these are just laws. You know, oftentimes people that are medical examiners will apply for these jobs and they are extremely qualified and they have a beautiful running office. So don't worry about that. So basically, the medical examiner can be any sort of physician, and especially smaller areas, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pathologist. So I think I read that in some states somewhere, the medical examiner was an OBGYN, which is a baby doctor for those of you who don't know. (laughs) So really just any sort of like medically trained physician can hold the title of medical examiner. Like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of different laws, state laws, county laws. So there are 16 states that have a centralized state medical examiner. What this means is that there's one medical examiner for the entire state. First started in Virginia, actually. So the state is notified of every single death that happens within the state. There are sort of like branches of local medical examiners that will handle these cases, because obviously the state medical examiner is not going to handle like thousands and thousands of deaths on a daily basis. I don't know how many people die on a day in Virginia. I haven't been there in a while. (laughs) And um, so that's centralized state medical examiner. One huge medical examiner kind of overseeing everything else has ultimate authority in the state. There are six states that are county or district-based medical examiners. This includes Michigan and Texas. Um, what this means is that each county has their own medical examiner, and this medical examiner has ultimate authority over all of the deaths that happen in their county. Fourteen states are county-based with a mix of coroner or medical examiner systems, these are California, Washington, Ohio. So what this means is that each county either has a coroner or a medical examiner, depending on what their you know specific needs are and how their government system is set up. 14 states have only coroner systems. So this would be Colorado, Louisiana. And if you're interested to see like what your state is kind of you know, handling or what's going on with your state medical examiner's office, you can go to the CDC website and uh, look up your state. It's actually really cool to see all the different states and like how they kind of handle their uh, death situations. So in modern times now, a lot of medical examiners are also pathologists or forensic pathologists. And what this means is that you're a doctor that studies and specializes specifically in pathology which is the study of diseases. So what you spend your entire schooling career is learning every disease, how it affects the human body. So you can see obviously why these people are specialized to kind of figure out uh, why you died, what's going on, and to be able to sign a death certificate and give you a cause of death. One of the accrediting agencies for medical examiners is called NAME, N-A-M-E, and they are one of the biggest accrediting agencies for medical examiner's offices but only 42 offices in the whole country are accredited by name and i work in one of them just saying and <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's only uh those offices only service 23% of the population so i don't want that to seem like all other medical examiner offices are shady and bad it just goes to show like the vast spread of the different state laws and different ways that states handle their dying population and decedents, um, which is really interesting to me, I think. absolutely, Yeah. So because medical examiners are extremely busy people, and they absolutely cannot be on every single death scene all at once, they actually started to employ... People called medical legal death investigators uh, or medical death investigators. So these are people that are hired by the medical examiner's office to go out on death scenes and basically collect and document evidence and write a report for the medical examiner, um, sort of detailing the death, the circumstances, how the decedent was found. They are required to take pictures for the medical examiner. They are often required to talk to the family. In some states, instead of the police uh, notifying your family members that you've passed away, the medical death investigator will often go out and do that. So these are extremely important individuals. And I say that because I am one. (laughs) (laughs) And I absolutely love my job. There is no uh requirements, really, to be a medical death investigator. You have to have a somewhat of a background in, you know, death or caring for people on a medical level, or forensic science, something like this just to have those basic requirements to get hired and get the job. And then they train you on the job to basically become a professional death investigator, almost at the level of a medical examiner, because you are the eyes and the ears of the medical examiner when you're on the scene by yourself with the police. So there's another accredited dating agency that controls the education of death investigators. It's called the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators. You can look it up online. And it was actually founded in 1998. Before then, there wasn't really any sort of requirements or uh, certification for death investigators. So you can see how this is like a recent development and everything is getting more streamlined and we're having um, certification requirements for these kind of really touchy situations. So the last people that you're going to see at your death scene are either the funeral home, which Red will take over shortly, or the body removal service. And this was another job that I had for many years. So this is often a third-party company. That is a totally separate company from the medical examiner from any funeral home. It's basically just a person that owns a bunch of vans and they contract out their services so that funeral homes and medical examiners can get their bodies where they need to go. So if the death investigator is not taking the body to the medical examiner's office themselves, they will often call these body removal service companies and they basically show up and put you in a body bag and take you on your merry way to the medical examiner's office. Once you get to the medical examiner's office, there's going to be a determination whether you need an external examination which is basically the doctor will look over you, make sure everything's okay, make sure you don't have a bullet hole in you somewhere (laughs) hiding, (laughs) (laughs) or they will determine if you need an autopsy. If you are at the medical examiner's office for medical examiner reasons, um, this will be a forensic autopsy. And taking a step back, uh, medical examiners are only responsible for deaths that are sudden, unexpected, tragic in any sort of way, like an accident, you know, murders, suicides, they're responsible for these unexplained deaths, because we need to know a cause of death. And that is what the medical examiner or coroner is uh, here for. They're supposed to determine cause of death and sign the death certificate. That is their whole entire job in one sentence. So basically, if it is determined that you need a forensic autopsy, um, the medical examiner has the authority to do that autopsy without the permission of the family. Obviously, if your medical examiner cares about families and cares about the decedents loved ones he will uh, work with the family to do whatever they think is best but ultimately if you know say your grandma was murdered and your family doesn't want an autopsy she probably will still have an autopsy
0: and that also looks very suspicious yeah
1: Right. So the point of an autopsy is to determine the cause of death, um, to sign the death certificate. And actually, while doing research for this, um, episode we're doing here, there's actually a crazy, like, really cool history about death certificates. I don't know if you know anything about it, Red, but, uh, basically death certificates came about back when the Black Plague was happening in 1512. That was like the Black Plague happened and then everyone was like, uh, we should probably try to keep track of all these dead people. So they were called um, Bills of Mortality, which is a really cool band name <laughs> if any of you guys have read <laughs> it. That. But that's basically where death certificates came from, and that's why we have them today. So after the medical examiner determines cause of death, uh, what happens next? Where do you go? You can't just stay in the morgue forever. So this is where our wonderful funeral directors come in.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'll take my <laughs> bow now. Um, so with the funeral home side of death care, the easiest way to break it up, since there are just an incredible amount of jobs within funeral homes themselves, um, I'm going to put it into three categories of like licensed staff, certified staff, and unlicensed staffed. So many of the following titles that I'm going to be uh, talking about may not be present at every funeral home because the smaller the firm, the less specialized staff are needed. So the individual is more responsible for multiple tasks. So I'm just going to be talking about the most common jobs and their functions within a funeral home. Our funeral director, that's the term that you're going to hear the most. That is the most modernly accepted term, and it often covers um, both licensed funeral directors and uh, dual licensed staff, so funeral director embalmers. Funeral directors handle the at-need arrangements with client families and merchandise selections, and they do follow-up and planning of uh, funeral events and then the conducting of funeral services themselves many states have separate licenses for funeral directors and embalmers. So a lot of people just might only have the embalmers licenses. These staff coordinate transfers of the deceased into the funeral home's care. They also handle preservation of remains and presentation of the deceased, which is dressing, casketing, cosmetizing, and sometimes restoration, depending on uh, if there is any trauma present in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you, you might, you know, hear those terms modernly, but there are some other terms that you might be familiar with, such as mortician and undertaker. And so, what a mortician is? This is the pinky in the air term for a funeral <laughs> director. <laughs> it was coined around 1895, and it was during a meeting of Funeral Directors Association of Kentucky. And basically, it's a combination of the word mortuary and physician. This is actually my favorite term. Um, I think it's a little more macabre, which is why I like it. But I think, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's
1: really funny too. <laughs> to be honest, yeah,
0: definitely. So, um, but I think for the same reason is why it's not really used very often because it is a little bit darker um, but I, I think some states actually might consider dual licensure so being a funeral director and Balmer, they might actually use the term mortician more often for a dual licensed person mm-hmm. then unta- undertaker that's the ye olde term mm-hmm. <laughs> for funeral director like origin stories term it can be a little confusing of a term because the definition for the word undertake is just anyone who undertakes a task. So you could be an undertaker of a sandwich shop or you know <laughs> an undertaker of a gas station like. Mm-hmm. So eventually back in the day uh, the term undertaker was linked specifically to those who undertook the business of death. You'd be pretty hard pressed to find anyone utilizing this term in casual conversation nowadays except um, bluegrass musicians or people who like wrestling I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> So those are going to be your licensed staff. In the United States, um, there's only one state that actually does not require licensure for um, funeral directing or embalming.
1: Can I guess what it is?
0: Go for it. Colorado, Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is Colorado. Yeah, everywhere else uh, requires licensure in some shape or form, either singularly for funeral director or embalmer or the dual licensure of both. And as Jim had said, that does not make Colorado like a sketchy place to have your like loved one die. It's Absolutely. just that they have different laws, so you'd be well taken care of in any state by most funeral directors and embalmers, whether there's licenses or not. People get into this for the Right reasons. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope so. I, I would hope so too. <laughs> so, there's also um, support staff inside the funeral home that basically put a lot of work in behind the scenes to help funeral directors and embalmers do the events that we do uh, and run day to day operations. So, during a visitation or a service, you'll have associates or greeters. These people swing the door, you know, quote unquote, swing the door, uh, essentially just inviting people in and directing them, attending to anything that might be pressing during a visitation or a funeral. There's also your coach and limo and escort drivers that assist with processions going to cemeteries from funeral homes to cemeteries, churches to cemeteries, basically anytime you need to be coordinating on a large amount of people and vehicles. And then there's also certified celebrants that can help plan personalized ceremonies for families. Um, not everybody, and yet again, not every state has certified celebrants, but there are a lot of programs available for people to become certified. And basically, it's just to help you understand how to plan a really meaningful service. It's, it's actually a program that I want to attend at some point. I would love to do that.
1: Yeah, that sounds nice.
0: So there's also a lot of front of house support. I'm going to use that term front of house. Essentially, that is uh, staff that works with the the general public. So there's administrative assistants, which are people who directly support funeral directors and follow up with tasks and family relations that the funeral director asks for. There's also daytime and nighttime phone attendants, grief support counselors, and actually sometimes grief support animals. Which I would oh, love to do an episode wow. on. <laughs> yeah,
1: I literally have never heard of that before, but I'm loving it.
0: Honestly, you can go like just Google local funeral homes and look at their staff page, and sometimes there's a dog oh. on there. Oh my
1: God. <laughs> it's God. really precious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but obviously, grief support counselors give people who are experiencing grief um, in any way, shape, or form tools to help deal with it. They can be certified, but not all of them are therapists. That's something that's important to remember. There's also pre-planning advisors, which are people who help plan and secure funds for future funeral services. Um Yet again, these people usually need a certification, but aren't always licensed funeral directors. And lastly, uh, catering hosts and hostesses.
1: Oh, of course, the food.
0: It's such such an important part of any event, whether it's a wedding or a funeral. Absolutely. (laughs) So now we switch to back-of-house support. So anybody who's dealing with care center things, basically not with the general population or very limited uh, interaction with the general population, especially client families. So you have um, transfer teams. Um, So if there's not a third party like Jem had mentioned, that is contracted to um, do transfer of deceased, a lot of funeral homes will have people in their care center that are specifically uh, going to hospitals, going to medical examiner's offices to bring uh, loved
1: ones into our care at the funeral home. And in case you didn't know, transfer is a fancy funeral safe word for basically bringing the body from point A to point B.
0: That's a really good way to put it funeral safe, because I'm going to be using a lot of um, value terms like that that are a little softer for people to hear um, when you're making arrangements with them. So you're going to kind of hear both sides of funeral terminology from me and Mm Jem. So
1: I think we should do an episode on that one, too.
0: Actually, I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. I actually found it interesting when I was researching for this episode as well. I uh, have not worked in a state that has this yet, but some um, require transport teams to have some type of certification or licensure, which is pretty interesting, I think, but it's not a lot.
1: I was going to say when I worked at um, the funeral home when I was growing up, you had to be under the direction of a funeral director in order to do transfers. You couldn't hire a third-party company.
0: So if you have any questions about your state and the licensing that are actually necessary for a funeral director, embalmer, transfer staff, or crematory operator. Um, the best resource is going to be the NFDA uh, website, which is the National Funeral Directors Association website. It's just nfda.com. They have this really, really helpful PDF that has just a huge table of check boxes next to what's necessary. Um, it's extremely helpful. I, I looked at this many times when I was just getting licensed or looking into colleges, so highly recommend it. You also have crematory operators. Um, They obviously handle cremations and also can help with filling of urns and things like that. Not all states require certification for this as well. So then we also have office staff and kind of like an et cetera category for assistant staff, support staff. So accountants, HR representatives, death certificate processing, uh, graphics and printing department, IT support, maintenance staff like groundskeeping, fleet upkeep repairs, and then housekeepers. There's a lot of people that keep things running behind the scenes, just like any other you know company or corporation.
1: Yeah, I want to throw in that I totally forgot to mention, but there are absolutely these people involved in medical examiner offices as well.
0: Exactly. Because if you had to do what a medical examiner or a funeral director does and do all that, I honestly don't know how small funeral homes deal with it. Like, I really don't. To kind of explain some chain of command, there's going to be a location manager, which pretty much is always going to be a funeral director as well. Depending on like large firms with a lot of different locations, you end up sometimes having general managers or operations managers, and then at the very top sits uh, owner's or like president CEOs, sometimes they call themselves different things. Um, But yet again, pretty much all of these people are licensed funeral directors. Something that I wanted to also mention, some people that you end up finding around a funeral home are people involved in the educational field. So you'll see apprentices sometimes. These are people who are doing on-the-job training to become licensed. This is usually after a college education, but not always. Some states do have essentially on-the-job training in order to take tests to become a director instead of doing a college course. But yet again, not all states. And then practicum students. We had to do this at the college that I went to um, essentially during your education in college, you basically had a day set aside that you would go to a funeral home and have on-the-job shadowing as part of your education. The last thing I wanted to mention is uh, staff outside the funeral home. A lot of the previously mentioned titles actually can be outsourced to third-party companies, so things like transfers. An interesting term that I had found was deserologist. So these are people that can actually get licensure for hair and makeup of
1: the deceased specifically. Oh, wow. I never knew that they had a name. Yeah. I just thought they were like dead people, hair people.
0: Right. Because, I mean, um, some people, I mean, can just be hair, like just regular hairstylists with their own licenses, but there is specific licensure and studies towards the care of the deceased because it's so much different, you know, doing hair for a deceased person versus a live person.
1: It really is. It takes some skill.
0: Oh, my gosh, so much (laughs) skill. I can't do it. But some some funeral home staff, like embalming staff, um, and then hairstylists on staff can do this. So it's not always necessary to have a deserologist. But there's also, of course, places that we work with, like florists, cemetery staff and grounds crew, vault casket and monument companies, and clergy and church staff. I could go on for all of the companies that, you know, we work with that help us do what we do every day. But uh, then this episode could go into next week so <laughs> <laughs> absolutely this list by no means is exhaustive but now i am that was a lot <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> absolutely like you said there are so many people involved in the death industry if you are interested in being involved in the death industry i can guarantee that there is a job for you there were a couple of outlier jobs that i wanted to mention I've heard of this term a couple of times before, but the death doula is is this um, kind of new and up and coming thing that is sort of synonymous with the home death, kind of like a death midwife, if you want to put it that way. I think they're called death midwives a lot of the time. Basically, they're a non-medical professional and they're sort of like this holistic, spiritual mind and body kind of guides and approach to death and dying and dealing with that. So as you would hire a midwife to, you know, birth your child holistically, uh, you would hire a death doula to kind of escort you through death holistically. And there's also a opportunity in the grief and mourning aspect of the death industry Interestingly, I have recently discovered this volunteer program called No One Dies Alone, and basically these people go to hospitals and they sit with people that are suffering from illnesses, um fatal illnesses and they don't have any family, they're alone. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people like that that come through the hospital. So, No One Dies Alone is a, a volunteer idea where you, you know, sit with this person as they die. And, you know, not a lot of people can do that. So if that is something that you think you can do, like, I would definitely check it out. Seems like a very, very fulfilling. Um, experience.
0: I've never heard of that, but it's absolutely something that's necessary and honestly really beautiful to be able to provide that service to somebody.
1: Yeah. And on that note, too, if you're a trained, um, certified social worker, you can also work in offices of decedent affairs, uh, working in hospitals or even with medical examiner's office these days are starting to hire social workers, um, helping deal with these grieving families who've lost a loved one. And, you know, it's shocking and it's hard and a lot of people experience it in many different ways. So, There's a lot out there for you to do in the death industry, uh, more than even what we talked about in this episode. I forgot to say like a bunch of stuff, but I was just like way too excited.
0: I know this was like super dense episode because there's just so much.
1: Another dense episode.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's all for this week on Mort Mike. We'd love to connect with you guys on our socials. Like, follow and subscribe to us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at Mort Mike Podcast. That's M-O-R-T-M-I-C P-O-D-C-A-S-T. It would mean a lot to hear your feedback. So please tell us what you think in a comment and drop us a rating on whatever podcast hosting site you use. If you have any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear or burning questions you may have about death, shoot us an email at mortmikepodcast at gmail.com.
1: I also want to thank our friend Marson for the use of his song titled Deputies of Death, which he produced just for our show. You can check out more of his music at Marson Music. That's M-A-R-S-O-N music.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Marson.
0: And be sure to tune in every other week on Thursdays for more casual discussions on death. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Mort
1: Mike. Bye. Bye.